Happy Palm Sunday. It's good to be in the Lord's house, is it not? The title of this message is Jesus, our King, Priest, and Prophet. These are three vocations, uh, as they're known in Christian theology, the threefold office of Christ, three roles, if you will, that Jesus filled during his earthly ministry and that he still continues to exercise to this day. Palm Sunday, of course, marks the beginning of Holy Week, which culminates next Sunday with Easter. But really, we have to start even further back to the story of Advent, the Advent of our Savior, the Christmas story. Otherwise, Holy Week and Easter really make little or no sense. Well, the New Testament begins in Matthew chapter 1 in Old Testament fashion with a genealogy. We all know what those are, right? If you've read through your Bible, those daily Bible reading things, you come across all those begats and begots, which we all love, don't we? But uh, well, we have to wade through those. But the genealogy of Jesus proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is a direct descendant of Israel's greatest king, namely King David. For one of David's descendants was to become the king, the deliverer, who would restore the kingdom to Israel, the one known as Messiah. Matthew chapter 2 goes on to tell us about the Magi, those mysterious visitors from the east who came to Jerusalem and said, we are here seeking one who has been born, what? King of the Jews, the deliverer, this same Messiah. For we saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. So this is the first of three, uh, the three offices of Jesus, namely Jesus as king. And that is how the crowd greeted him as he rode into Jerusalem that first Sunday. We read earlier that many spread their cloaks in the road and others spread leafy branches they had cut from the fields. Those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, which means, Lord, save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Indeed, the very possibility that Jesus even could be the promised king had filled this crowd with tremendous excitement and energy. After all, it had been over 600 years since they had had a king, since one of Abraham's descendants actually sat on the throne as ruler in Israel. And as you read through the four Gospels, you can't help but note that our Lord had a great deal to say about the kingdom of God. In many of his parables, he would be in the saying, the kingdom of God is like this, or the kingdom of God shall be like that. But he said very, very little about ever being a king, and for very good reason. That kind of talk in the ancient Roman Empire would get you killed. In fact, that's the only thing Pilate really cared about, isn't it, was, are you a king? I hear that you're a king. Well, now, only with less than a week to live, Jesus accepts that greeting given to him as king and Messiah, for indeed he was and still is the king. But our king is also a priest. Hebrews chapter 2, 14 describes him as our great high priest. And that is the second of his three offices. Since the days of Moses, the tribe of Levi, the Levites were the priestly tribe. They oversaw the worship, first in the tabernacle, that sort of portable temple that they had to drag around the wilderness for 40 years, and later in the temple that was built by David's son Solomon. The last of Israel's prophets, Malachi, said this, though, to the unfaithful sons of Levi of his day. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. The Lord whom ye seek will suddenly come to his temple, 
even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts is the Lord of armies, the powerful God. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. The fuller's were the professional cleaners of the day. They knew how to get blood stains out and all kinds of other things. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Well, the law of God, as you read through it in the Old Testament, that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai was literally filled with ritual cleansing, which was one of the jobs of the priests who had the very nasty and, and difficult job of offering sacrifices every day and all day. And thus following the royal welcome given to King Jesus on Palm Sunday, Jesus as priest goes immediately to the temple. And Mark says this. Mark says Jesus looked around at everything, but then leaves. He heads out to Bethany, sort of the suburbs where it's much safer. But the very next day, Jesus heads back to Jerusalem and he goes straight the temple where he fulfills Malachi's prophecy. Mark tells us in verse 15, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers, the seats of those who sold pigeons. He would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them saying, is it not written that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. In all fairness, it should be noted that not all the priests were corrupt. Uh, one thinks of Zechariah, for example, the father of John the Baptist. But still, even at its best, the work of the priests offering sacrifices was incomplete, and ultimately it was inadequate. And this is the great theme of the book of the Epistle to the Hebrews, and let me just read one verse from uh, chapter 7. The writer says this, The former priests, these Levites, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. He's able to save completely and for all time those who draw near to God through him. See, that was the point of those sacrifices. You didn't just draw near to God. No, you brought a sacrifice. You drew near to God saying, with that sacrifice, I'm a sinner. I don't deserve to be here. God is a holy God and I am not. But the writer says that we can draw near to God through him. Why? Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Isn't that good news? Beloved, that in a nutshell is the gospel. That is the good news that we proclaim here every Sunday. The liturgy of our table reminds us of this weekly when it says, and I quote, Jesus is our great high priest who stretched out his arms upon the cross and offered himself once for all that by his suffering and death we might be saved. Bishop Michael Nazir Ali, former Anglican Bishop of Rochester, England, I love the way he, he puts this, it's so beautiful. Listen carefully. No one else but the eternal word of God himself could rescue us from our plight by assuming our nature, standing in our place, and offering a sacrifice of obedience to turn away God's just anger from us and to make us friends once again with him. 
The implications of the cross are universal. Nothing is untouched by it, and all are brought to judgment under it, under the cross, but also to salvation through it if they respond with faith. The cross judges us all. Why? Because it was for all of us sinners that he died. That wouldn't have even happened were we not sinners. We're the ones to blame. Yes, and even those priests who confronted Jesus the next day, when they confronted him, they didn't complain that Jesus lost it. They didn't say, how dare you? You just completely went postal on us out there, as we sometimes say, in a fit of rage. No, they, they, they didn't complain about that because the priests and the, and the crooks who ran this racket knew that it was wrong. They knew it was a disgrace. It was an embarrassment. No, their only objection to Jesus was, by what authority do you do this? Who died and left you in charge? But Jesus refused to answer that question. Instead, he told them a story, or as we call them in Bible speak, a parable. And here Jesus puts on the third hat, if you will, the third office. Jesus is not only king and priest, Jesus is also prophet. And those prophets of old used to use stories to tell their, their, their uh, teachings to the people. And in prophet-like manner, Jesus tells them uh, a prophet, the story that we heard earlier in our gospel reading. It's a story that to these priests would sound a lot like a story that Isaiah, many hundreds of years before, told Israel's leaders about a landowner who planted a vineyard. And the punchline of Isaiah's parable is this, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plantings. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. But as Jesus the prophet tells the tale, God says this of Israel, I fenced it in, I built a wine press, and eventually sent a servant to collect a share of the proceeds. Instead, the servants, and those servants are the prophets of old, like Isaiah, one after another got nothing but a beating. Finally, the owner says, I'll send my son. They'll respect him. Instead, the tenants murdered him. And Mark adds that the priest realized that he was talking about them. It didn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out, did it? <laughs> they were exactly right. That's, that's who Jesus was talking about. Isaiah likened Israel to a vineyard planted and cared for by God who expected the fruit of righteousness and justice but only got the wild grapes of violence and injustice. God, speaking through Isaiah, went on to say this back in those days past, and now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. And beloved, that's exactly what the Assyrians and later the Babylonians did to ancient Israel. They destroyed it. And so to our Lord as prophet, in the very next chapter, in Mark chapter 13, we won't go there this morning, but the entire chapter is a prediction of the same, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, which occurred 40 years later in the year A.D. 70 at the hands of the Romans. And you can see what's left of the temple in Jerusalem today. It is called, and some of you have been there, the Wailing Wall. That's all that's left. All this leaves me asking a question. So was all this a failure? I mean, why did Jesus even waste his breath on these guys? Well, therein is the good news, because that's what love does. Our Lord never gave up on them. 
even knowing that later that very same week, some of them would testify and pressure Pilate to sentence him to death. He did not give up on them. Dearly beloved, he doesn't give up on you or me either. Aren't you glad? As the prophet, the ultimate prophet, after his resurrection and just before his ascension to heaven, Jesus made one more prophecy, this time the apostles, to the apostles who had asked him at that moment, Lord, this is all great. Everything's come great. So are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? Are you going to become the king of Israel now? That's what they thought. They could just see it. Jesus says, no. You will receive power. Not political power, not military power. You will receive power, real power, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, right here where we are, in Judea, the outlying areas, and Samaria. We all know what that is. That's enemy territory. And to the end of the earth. And when he said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up, not like he was a few days earlier when he was lifted up on a Roman cross, but rather he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. In other words, what are you standing around for? Jesus is coming back. Get cracking. Get on with the business of what he told you to do, to go into all the world and make disciples of all people. And so they did. And Jesus' prophetic words to the apostles came true, as even in their own lifetime, the gospel spread all the way in the west to Spain, all the way to the east in India, across the, the top rim of Africa, across the entire continent of of North Africa and all north into Europe just in their lifetimes even as it continues to do to this day so I want to share one passage with you from Acts chapter 6 this is really this is really great and the word of the Lord continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith hmm. <laughs> Not some, not many, a great many. A great many sons of Levi were purified, as Malachi the prophet had prophesied. Forever cleansed of their sins, because Jesus, our prophet, our priest, and our king, did not give up on them. No doubt some of them, perhaps even most of them, were there that day when he cleansed the temple. Perhaps there were some of them there that day that Jesus died, when at the moment of Jesus' death, the veil in the temple, that, that thick curtain, they say it was the thickness of a man's hand, that veil that guarded the way into the holiest of place where the high priest would bring the sacramental blood on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, that veil was torn in two from top to bottom, signifying, as they very well knew, more than anyone, that the barrier between sinners and a holy God is gone forever. Jesus' as king did not restore the kingdom to Israel in the sense that they expected and hoped for that he would do on that first Palm Sunday. He did something much better, much, much better. And I love the way Michael Horton, a, a beloved a Reformed Episcopal theologian, puts it. He says this, instead of driving out the Romans, he commanded love for our enemies. Gathering the new Israel, 
Jew and Gentile, around himself by his spirit. Through word and sacrament, Jesus inaugurates the kingdom of grace that will be manifested one day as the kingdom of glory. In this time between the two comings of Jesus, the wheat grows together with the weeds. The sons of thunder are rebuked for calling down judgment here and now on those who reject their message. And the faithful gather regularly, even as we're doing today. For the apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and the prayers. Through its administration of gospel preaching, baptism, the supper, prayer, and discipline, the church is God's new society inserted into the heart of the secular city as a witness to Christ and the age to come when he will be all in all. St. John the Apostle describes that coming age in Revelation chapter 11 where he says, And there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Not simply as king of the Jews, but king of kings and lord of lords. I pray this morning that Jesus is your prophet, that you hear his voice, that he speaks the truth to you, painful as it sometimes is, that he is your priest, that he is the one who has atoned for your sins, that your claim to eternal life is found, as the old hymn says, based on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I pray that he is your king, that he really is lord of your life, that he really does call the shots, not just the king, but king of your life. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.